Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book In the Arena by Isabel Kuhn, with permission of OMF International, and we are reading Chapter 12, Dread Disease. If the Lord tarry, there must come, sometime, a last platform. Always the flesh would pray that it might be an easy one, but the Lord looks to the eternal weight of glory, and so he may choose otherwise sometimes. The story of how we were led to go to Thailand after John was released by the communists has been told in Ascent to the Tribes. The beginning of this chapter finds us there. I think the very beginning is to be found in my first trip in search of the tribes of North Thailand. As we climbed those hills on that occasion, hindrances, annoyances, accidents kept happening to our group until we decided that they must come from the satanic forces which had ruled the heights above us since the first human beings found their way there. We gathered together right there on that steep, jungle-tangled mountainside and claimed the power of God over each member of our party. It was not before but after that prayer of faith that I was suddenly struck in the breast by a stick. We were walking single file and a fallen tree branch lay concealed under the leaves of the path. As a young worker in front of me unknowingly stepped on one end, the other end snapped up and struck me severely. When I could recover my breath and walk on, I was last in line. I looked to the Lord in my heart. Oh, Lord, why did that happen? I thought a blow like that to a woman, 50 years of age, was likely to turn to cancer. Was I not protected by your power? Although I was mistaken, those thoughts came immediately. You are protected, dear, and you will get cancer. And I'm going to take you back to America. Now it was not clearly his voice. I repeat, the Lord sometimes speaks so clearly that we cannot confound or doubt him or deny. This was not that. I did not dare say that those thoughts had been from him. The parting with the children again had been hard, so the above thoughts might have been just the wishful thinking of mother part of me. Therefore, I did not count on it being his voice. As soon as we turned to civilization, I went to Dr. Bucker for examination. He felt it was just a torn ligament, so I accepted that diagnosis and went on with my work, deliberately putting all thoughts of serious trouble out of my mind. Several months passed, and again I was in the mountains, in a quite a different part of the country, with a different group of fellow workers. We were preaching in a hamlet where I had never been before, and the headland shanty was packed with lacy villagers. John presented the gospel to them, to which they listened attentively. Then he turned to me and said, now you preach for a while. I felt I should tell them that Christ Jesus is stronger than the demons to whom they were so enslaved. Immediately, it was as if a voice said, Better not. If you do, the demons will take revenge on you. But I did proclaim that anyway, for it is truth that they much needed to know. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I had no sooner said it, however, than the young men all jumped up in alarm and left the house leaving me speaking to only women and children. When I finished, our party departed from the village. But as we did, someone said, Look up at that demon shrine. On the hill above us were young men silently encircling their shrine, as if on guard. It was unusual, sinister, and humiliating. We were in their sight as grasshoppers, came to my mind as our party climbed the hill. That night it rained, and the next morning we had to return to base camp. All the hillsides were slippery and wet. After we slid and descended for about an hour, someone behind me called me. I turned to hear better and slipped. Down I came on the jagged stump. 
a nasty jolting blow in the same place as the first blow. But as I fell, a picture of those young men guarding their demon had flashed before me. I had not been thinking of them, for it took all my wits to keep upright on that slippery slope. Once down the hill and into civilization, I again sought medical advice. An x-ray showed nothing. I felt as if the Lord said, The time hasn't come yet. Get on with your work. And so I did. I was not haunted by any fear of the disease. I had put it deliberately out of my mind and was joyful in my work. Over a year passed, and physically I had never felt better in my life. But one day, noticing something not normal in the area where I had twice been hit, I felt I should see Dr. Bunker. He looked very serious and said a biopsy should be taken immediately. To my surprise, the first report came back non-malignant. Naturally, John was jubilant, and personally, I did not believe it was correct. It is most important, however, never to act on these illuminated punches. I distinguish between the clear voice of God and mere premonitions. Do not hesitate to bank everything on the direct command of the Lord, but I would not act on mere impression, because simply, many of my impressions have proved to be false, mere imagination. Satan can distressfully entangle people who act on their own premonitions. By now I was beginning to believe it was the Lord, not imagination, who had told me nearly two years before that I would develop cancer, but I did not let it occupy my thoughts. I merely wrote to two very dear friends about the non-malignant report. I said, pray that if it is wrong, I may be alerted in time, and that meanwhile I may be enabled to forget it and get on with my work. That prayer was answered perfectly. Our annual field conference was coming very close, and I threw my energies into preparing for it. We house-cleaned every room, and all arrangements were made, clearly mapped out even to the menu for each day. When Dr. Richard Bunker appeared and informed me that a further test of the biopsy was not so optimistic, and they felt I should have an operation immediately. As it happened, a very skillful surgeon was taking a holiday at Shinmai, just those two days, and had consented to operate, if I would have it the very next day. He was leaving the next afternoon. Immediately, it was as if the Lord placed a hand on my shoulder and said, That is it. We had supper guests that night, so there was not much time for flesh to brood over it and get alarmed, which was a kindness. Just before we left for the hospital the next morning, I turned to see what verse was on my scripture calendar. It was Psalm 127.2, for he grants sleep to those he loves. I was startled. My hunch had spoken of going to America, but there had been nothing of death in it. Did the Lord? But I cast it out of my mind as they honked for me to get into the jeep. Just a chance calendar verse anyway. Or was the Lord trying to prepare me? Better not think about it now, on the way to the operation. If it was of the Lord, he would tell me again. So I went cheerfully to the ordeal. It was the most skillfully done, and I had every care. Nurse Dorothy Jones of our mission, special to me, ministered most lovingly. One morning, a house doctor came and stood at the foot of my bed and said, In all my experience, I've seen very few patients come through an operation like yours with so little suffering. Don't you think it is because I am relaxed, doctor, I said. Undoubtedly, but I used you as an illustration for my class this morning. I told them that they should try to get their patients to put their faith in something outside of them. Buddha for Buddhist, Christ for Christian, because it would bring relaxation and help them so much. And then he left. But I lay there thinking, good psychology? Certainly he's a clever doctor, but how perfectly impossible for a person in such a weak condition to hook his faith onto some nebulae outside of himself 
just because it was to his benefit if he could. That was not what I was doing. I was resting back on the private word spoken to me two years before. Amy Carmichael says this, Before we reach the place where such waters must be crossed, there is almost always a private word spoken by the beloved to the lover. That is a word which will be most assaulted as we stand within sight and sound of that seething, roaring flood. The enemy will fasten upon it, twist about it, belittle it, obscure it, try to understand our confidence in its integrity, and to wreck our tranquility by making us afraid. But this will put him to the flight. I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. God had told Paul in Acts 23.11, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This was Paul's private word. And when the terrible storm struck their ship, neither sun nor stars appeared in many days, and all hope that they would be saved was taken away. Paul stood on that private word. They would not perish, for God said he was to see Rome. And he said quietly, I have faith in God. Paul was not hooking his faith onto some nebulae outside of himself, but onto the word of one whom he had proved for so many years. Even as Paul said, I must see Rome. So I relaxed and lay back on the word. This is to take me to America. But I must not yet tell anyone that. The China Indian mission does not fly a missionary home to the United States just because she has a serious operation. It would have to be for some special reason, and that only God should manipulate. I must keep my hands off. But I quite believed it would happen. Now, nobody had yet told me that the operation revealed malignancy. When I asked Dr. Munker, he just teased me and avoided a straight answer. But after I'd been home from the hospital about a week, a letter was handed to us. It contained the medical report, which said it was a fast-growing malignancy, and the ordinary estimate would give me only a year or so to live. The surgeon had thought he saw traces of it entering the chest, and he advised my flying to America immediately. This advice was being passed to the mission headquarters, and that is how God manipulated events until his private word to me had been fulfilled. Now I had to face the little calendar verse of the operation morning. Had it been a mere coincidence after all, or had it been a tender preparation? Time alone will tell. At first I was startled. I had not expected this and it was difficult to believe. A month after the operation, which surgeons in America highly praised, I felt normal again. The specialist who examined me was inclined to be quizzical about the melancholy prophecy. He said he found no trace of malignancy left, and so I went about my work giving it my full attention. But I was at the same time making discoveries. I had a new lesson set before me, and it was the best expressed in the words of Second Corinthians 10.5, casting down imaginations and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I found that imagination could give me a bad time. If I coughed, for instance, I immediately had lung cancer, although x-rays showed the chest to be clear. If I had a toothache, then I was getting cancer of the mouth, and so on. Every tinkle and every twinge was instantly interpreted as related to my grim enemy. But if I asserted my right to the sound mind, Second Timothy 1.7, these fears left me, and the twinges never developed into anything further. For God had not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. A sound mind is our gift from God. This verse says we need to claim it. The American Standard Version translates that word as discipline, and the one includes the other. 
for a sound mind is necessarily a disciplined one. Thus I set a new lesson and an old lesson in new form. I had to refuse to allow my imagination to play with my future. That future, I believe, is ordered of God, and no man can guess it. For me to let myself imagine how or when the end would come was not only unprofitable, it was definitely harmful. So I had to bring my thoughts into captivity that they might not dishonor Christ. The best way to do this, I found, was to engage in some interesting work. While still confined to bed, I tried prayer and reading. As I became stronger, I set about writing a book. I drew up daily schedule that would come within the limits of what strength I had and tried to keep it faithfully. This I enjoyed, and I can say truthfully that on this platform of a dread disease, there had been many months of a very real happiness. It makes for health to have a goal and to keep on striving for it. Of course, I realized that the Lord has been especially good to me in giving me work, which is so congenial and yet does not require much physical labor. But I am sure he would have different ideas and helps for others of his children who are on this same platform. Another thing that has helped me to keep a sound mind is the gathering of Edelweiss of God. I owe this thought to Amy Carmichael. In her book, Gold by Moonlight, she has a whole chapter on it. Edelweiss grows on barren mountain heights, and its soft beauty is a cheery surprise to a toiling climber. So Amy Carmichael likened it to the little things of joy, which always can be found in any painful experience. If only we will gather them as we go along. Sound health and a normal life I cannot have while on this platform. Therefore, I accept the fact, and I do not fret about it. But this very trial has brought me unexpected joys, and these I dwell on and delight in them as his kind tokens of remembrance. Letters and cards from all over the world have come to me. People I did not know existed are praying for me, and they do kind things for me. Is that not delightful? That has enriched my life. Loving friends have made it possible for us to have our own home, a little flat, and I've already had our dear son with me longer than a normal furlough would have given. I rejoiced in that. Why not? The future of our loved ones after I leave them. The Lord who has been so kind to me will not be less kind so to them. For my beloved I will not fear. Love knows to do. For him, for her, from year to year as hitherto, whom my heart cherishes are dear to thy heart too. Amy Carmichael My bedroom is kept beautiful with lovely flowers and gifts from loving friends and relatives. This is Edelweiss. Good books are given or lent to me. Edelweiss again. Dainty things to eat are brought to our door. But to enumerate all the Edelweiss is hopeless. Suffice to say, much has been given. What of the dark valley that will inevitably come? I am told that before he died, Dr. Harry Reimer wrote to Dr. Charles Fuller something like this. Next Sunday, you are to talk about heaven. I am interested in that land because I have held a clear title to a bit of property there for over 55 years. I did not buy it. It was given to me without money and without price. But the donor purchased it for me at a tremendous sacrifice. I'm not holding on to it for speculation since the title is not transferable. It is not a vacant lot. For more than half a century, I've been sending material out, of which the greatest architect and builder of the universe has been building a home for me, which will never need to be remodeled or repaired because it will suit me perfectly, individually, and will never grow old. Termites cannot undermine its foundation, for they rest upon the rock of ages. Fire cannot destroy it. Floods cannot wash it away. 
No lock or bolt will ever be placed upon its doors, for no vicious persons can even enter that land where my dwelling stands, now almost completed and almost ready for me to enter in and abide in peace eternally without fear of being ejected. There is a valley of deep shadows between the place where I live in California and that which I shall journey in a land for a short time. I cannot reach my home in that city of gold without passing through this dark valley of shadows, but I am not afraid, because the best friend I ever had went through that same valley long, long ago and drove away all its gloom. He has stuck by me through thick and thin since we first became acquainted 55 years ago. And I hold his promise in printed form, never to forsake me or to leave me alone. He will be with me as I walk through that valley of shadows, and I shall not lose my way when he is with me. Dr. Reimer has long since arrived in the city of gold, and I do not know how long was his passage through the valley of shadows. But I've learned this from my present platform that spiritual is tied down to the physical more than is apparent. After my first operation, finding I would have long hours just lying in bed, I said to myself, Good, now I will employ this time in intercession and prayer. But to my surprise and alarm, I found I could not. What was wrong with me? Was I backsliding? And then I realized it. To pray for others as I was accustomed to do required physical as well as spiritual strength. When I went to gather myself together for this concentrated work, I found there was nothing to gather. Nothing responded to my call. I had no physical strength with which to rally my forces. I just had to lie there and say, Well, Lord, I'll have to ask you to read my heart as you read the names of the breastplate of the high priest in the days of old. In the same way, the exercise of faith requires a physical strength that is not apparent to the well person, nor to the sick person himself if he has never before had the experience of physical weakness and sinking. This explains to me, myself at least, why some of the saints have seemed to find the valley of shadows a dark place. The Lord is most certainly there with them, but the unconscious habitual use of physical strength in laying hold of this fact by faith may disconcert by its absence. To me, it's not fair to judge such a person's salvation by what is seen at his deathbed. We do not take seriously what is said in the mutterings of delirium when a person is not himself. In the same way, a Christian's apprehension of Christ should be judged by his lifelong experience of him, not by what onlookers see during the last hours when the spirit is so hampered by a weakness and dissolved physique. Friends should take comfort in the fact that Christ is there and that dear one will be consciously in his arms the moment the spirit is free. I've been reading the diary of David Brandert these days and have noticed the relation between his own physical well-being or illness and his sense of God's presence. They were often related When ill in body, he bemoaned his spiritual barrenness. November the 1st, was very much disordered by body and sometimes full of pain. Alas, when God is withdrawn, all is gone. Then a few days later, after he was rested a bit, he writes, Saw more of the glory and majesty of God than I have ever seen before. Oh, how my soul then rejoiced in God. The spirit is not absolutely dependent on a physical well-being as I had myself proved on these pages, but it is more closely related that we are sometimes apt to allow. Facing the end of one's earthly pilgrimage is not a melancholy thing for a Christian. It is like preparation for the most exciting journey of all. Someone sent me a track on this subject, which I gave herewith, 
It's called Getting Ready to Move. The owner of the tenement, which I had occupied for many years, had given notice that he will furnish but little or nothing more for repairs. I am advised to be ready to move. At first, this was not a very welcome notice. The surroundings here are, in many respects, very pleasant, and were not for the evidence of decay I should consider the old house good enough. But even a light wind causes it to tremble and totter, and all the braces are not sufficient to make it secure. So I am getting ready to move. It is strange how quickly one's interest is transferred to the prospective home. I have been consulting maps of the new country and reading descriptions of its inhabitants. One, Second Corinthians 12:2, who visited it has returned, and from him I learned that it is a beautiful beyond description. Language breaks down in attempting to tell what he heard while there. He says that in order to make an investment there, he has suffered the loss of all things that he owned here and even rejoicing in what others would call making a sacrifice. Another, John 15:23, whose love to me has been proved by the greatest possible test, is now there. He has sent me several clusters of the most delicious fruits. After tasting them, all food here seems insipid. Two and three times I have been down by the border of that river that forms the boundary and have wished myself among the company of those who are singing praises to the king on the other side. Many of my friends have moved there. Before leaving, they spoke of my coming later. I have seen the smile upon their faces as they passed out of sight. Often I have asked to make some investments here, but my answer in every case is, I'm getting ready to move. This spirit of expectation is my dear inheritance and right. For the Christian, death is not the dissolution of life, but the consummation, the last of life for which the first was made. As Browning puts it, are, as Amy Carmichael words it, the days of our bloom and our power are just about to begin. Gone, they tell me, is youth. Gone is the strength of my life. Nothing remains but decline, nothing but age and decay. Not so, I'm God's little child, only beginning to live, coming the days of my prime, coming the strength of my life, coming the vision of God, coming my bloom and my power. Coming the vision of God. Christians often say that the most wonderful thing of all will be to see our Lord face to face. I have pondered that much and feel it surely worded inadequately. To see the Lord is but a lesser thing to one who has had a close spirit with spirit communion with him all along. What matters the color of his eyes or the shape of his face? That is not what makes him precious. Nothing is so deeply intimate as a spirit knit with spirit that we can and should enjoy right now while here on this earth. I think that what is meant is to be with the Lord with the root of sin gone, to fellowship with him without the lazy flesh dragging us back, and unwanted thoughts of pride and self constantly straining us, to be finally rid of corruption, to worship and enjoy him with heart, plunged into his own purity. That will be an advantage over anything that is possible on earth. And so the platform of a dread disease becomes like a springboard for heaven. We become like him in his death. In that pain which is inevitably connected with the descent into the valley of shadows, there will be fellowship. Even if not perceived by a weakened nature, the power of his resurrection will become known as never before. And the great end, that I may know him, will be granted. So it's sad for me to come to the end of another book, but that has been, it's been such a blessing to read this book and about her life. And we're going to be reading some more too. And the, the next book that we're going to be reading next Saturday is 
whom God has joined. And it is by Isabel Kuhn, and it is permission with OMF International. And so we are looking forward to reading that, and uh, I'm looking forward to being encouraged along with you as well. Well, I love you. I'm praying for you. Bye-bye for now. Lord bless.